Yes, may I help you? I am looking for a type of shoe, and and, and, and and I don't know exactly what I want. I know I want it to be encompassing of my whole aura. Yes, okay, well, let's start with the sole. Would you, would you want like a leather sole? You want to heal on it? That's where it gets confusing for me. I, I want it to be inside a plane where our hemispheres are merged and the universe's entire energy consorts itself in a manner that fits upon my feet and radiates up through my body. Do you have anything like that? Well, we have we have certain different types of hide. I, I, you could search into, you know, the color that you'd like. The color is irrelevant. It, it has to be. An, it, do you have anything blessed perhaps by a shaman? Anything from an, a different realm? Any, anything that potentially uh, mystical powers cured uh, certain diseases in, in previous centuries? I, I'm talking about something that uh, would be have been worn by an oracle. Well, no, we, we source our hides. Um from a shop down down the down the way and and, and the mostly cattle is, is what we're using would one of those calves have been blessed by uh, i don't know the dalai lama or um a mystical shaman is there a tribe that comes through here i'm looking for something like that well no as i said it's um let's go ahead and start with the design and perhaps we can work our way forward from that you you, you said you you want the it to have energy i think you're going to want to heal we'll do it we'll do a leather um, a three-layer heel with perhaps a, a rubber base now you're talking that sounds like something i can get into we got a rubber base it's bouncing my energy it's vibrating kinetic it's the spiritual realm in the entire universe of all its little mystical tendrils filtering out there into the deep unknown, resonating back, feeling up my whole body through my shins and up into my hips. And now I'm talking. I'm walking and I'm talking. I'm feeling energy. Great. Yes, yes. Uh, do you want do you, you want it to lace up, I assume, in the boot? You don't want it to be a slip-on? I'm thinking of a buckle. The pilgrims had the fortitude and wherewithal to navigate across the seas okay why did we ever leave that style okay let's put a a big old buckle on there and that buckle i'd like it to be if i think i know where you're going with this correct i want it to be magical we we don't have any magical items It, it doesn't have to necessarily be magical it has to have been created by someone within this i know i know about the spiritual realm i know what you're trying to do you want to have a boot, you want it to fit over your feet, that's okay, that's fine, but don't tell me you want magic when I don't have magic. Our calves are not f- sold by magical people, our hides are not magical, our buckles are not made by shaman. Give me an idea of what you want, and I'll make it. Do you want a shoe? Yes. Do you want a buckle? Yes, I can make that, but there's no magic in this store. All right, all right, I understand. I like your energy and where you're coming from. So we're building her up. We got a a rubber sole, and we got a a heel on it. 
I didn't say a rubber sole. I said a rubber bottom on the heel. The sole is up to you. That's the flat part. Do you want to dance? You perhaps want a smooth leather bottom. And then you can dance. You can spin. Now, if it's rubber, you're not going to spin as well. But when you're out and about, you won't slip as much. So think about that. Think about the shoe you want. And come back and tell me exactly what you want. Because as of now, you're wasting my time. I I didn't mean to waste your time. I thought we were designing a shoe here. I'm trying to connect to the energy in the room and feel out your aura, and I'm getting a sense you're not getting anything. You'll get nothing from me. Turn around and leave right now, and come back when you're ready. If you want to bring magic, bring your magic. But don't come here searching for magic. This isn't a magic store. Well, I don't know if I want to bring my business back in here. I don't care. It's not for me to decide. That's for you. Make up your mind and come back. Uh... Do, do you sell crystals? Get out! Hello, and welcome to the Space Cave. A big warg to all of you. And a reminder, uh, before we get started on this one, the five-year anniversary of the Junk Show is Sunday, April 14th. It's always the second Sunday of every month. If you find yourself in Los Angeles, head on over to the Copper Still at 8 p.m. It's on Beverly Boulevard. And... You'll have you'll have a nice time. It's a variety show, music, magic, animation, uh, stand up, which is if you only know me through the podcast, you might be unaware that that's what I've been doing with my life for the last whew, long time, almost two decades. Uh, I have albums out online. You can check those out. Just search David Huntsberger. You probably already know this, but if you don't, there's um, Hello Robot, Humanitis. Explosion Land, One-Headed Beast, and later this year, a new one. So I'll keep you posted on that. Okay, here's part two with Demorge Brown and some of this uh, delicious uh, lager. Was or how they taught. I just, but it's a thing. And it's taught, yeah. she was too taught to dodge. She was just, and she'd just go, what are you thinking right now? The dog would go, <laughs> <laughs> People think it's crazy, but I, I've any animal I've ever had, I've always just talked to them like, all right, yeah. here's what I'm like. When I was I was sick recently, and I would like, I had to lay on the couch, and he needed a lot of attention. And I'd be like, dude, I got I have a few days coming up where I'm just pretty much going to be on this couch. I need you to just kind of hang out with me and not be bugging me to go on walks. Right. And he was just like an additional blanket. He just laid there and was such a buddy. I think obviously a lot of people would be like, well, it's, there's a million factors that go into that, you know. No, I but think I. That- that thing, especially illness, they they, feel all, like, they see it and yeah. they kind of attend if they're if they're I think so. that type of dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird, and that <clears throat> it's weird to be talking about like dog breeds, and then to talk about things we have as humans. Where like you know, your grandfather was good with dogs, right. so that's also probably like a trait you have in you. Like you were it, saying, you know, you just you know, and we would go back for the summers, you know, and strangely about coon hunting is like. He had essentially it was a dog house that fit on the back of his truck, mm-hmm. so all the dogs would go in there. He'd yeah. pick whichever four he was taking of the eight or nine or ten or twelve, depending on what year it was that he had, and he put him in. Knew them all by name, knew, and they all had distinctive yelps. Yeah, so he knows them all by yelp, and that kind of hunting. This is going to sound brutal in a second, but like you go out to a field somewhere, open the gate. And then he just yells, he goes, go, go on, get the, whatever. And they just take off and yeah. they go into the woods. I mean, they just go and he'll follow them. But like, he comes back and he just waits. And if they find something, they'll run it up a tree and then they'll just bark. And the other ones will come yeah. and then they'll all just sit there and bark. Do you ever read Where the Red Friend Grows? 
I read it so, 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 so long ago. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's it. That's my whole like vision into that world. Reference, yeah. yeah. And that's, so that's what, what happened. But he would leave. Like he's like, if he couldn't find the dogs or didn't hear from him, he'd call if they didn't call back. Or if they did call, but they were way off somewhere in a ravine, he would just leave. <laughs> he would leave. He'd come back home. would go, you know, 25, 30, 50, 100 miles, come back home. And then after a couple of days, go back out and start walking toward where he left them and calling and calling and calling uh especially if it was at night and you have like a helmet with a the lantern on the top yeah and you just march out until you hear them and then when you hear them you get them they're like oh there's a thing and then you just you shoot it and it comes down and then they they stand and protect it while you take it and then and they might have been there for like two days oh yeah sometimes they come back like just skinny like (laughs) these skinny dogs because they've just been treeing forever waiting for for you know the hunter to come back and then uh you never wanted to get into it like from i mean i got into it to the extent that it was great to pal around and shadow with him and and do all those uh do all those things i know how to do a lot i can dress a lot of things i mean yeah it's the i know the minutiae of it and the sounds of it and Mm -hmm. the smells of it and that kind of stuff and the things that people don't generally know like you know with hogs and stuff there's wire bristle hairs there are hairs you have to get off then there's yeah. wire bristle hairs and you have to scald the skin to get those off and then you have to go with wire pliers and yank those things out what? And, oh yeah because there's like these wire hairs that are on the body that, i've heard of that and you have to pop that why they up. call them razorbacks no razorbacks have like a uh, on the a ridge down the back of their spine uh, of hairs that stand up uh-huh. and that's what it is it's like uh, a narrow like razor ridge and the they're they're boars and they're Man, they're messed they're, up. I've heard they're mean. Like if you—that's my grandfather's from Arkansas. My uh, my grand, my both my parents are from Arkansas. And my dad used to tell me these stories of like he came from outside of Little Rock, sort of Pine Bluff area, and there's um, lumber yards, lumber mills. Everybody works in the works for like potlatch, the paper plant, pulp mills, that kind of stuff. And I think his high school mascot was the lumberjacks, <laughs> and like potlatch paid for everything, all the uniforms. <laughs> so the school calendar was like. Had you know all kinds of stuff, and people walking around with like less than five fingers in each hand, like you know yeah. a lot. There's a lot because of, of boars. Uh, I think because of saw blades and stuff. Ah, but he would sense. dive off this. The um, interstate went over this river, and you could dive like almost high dive off of it into the thing. But you'd have to walk up this forest ravine all the way back up to the freeway to dive again, and. There were what, there were razorbacks down there, and so sometimes <laughs> you'd have to run and climb a tree and wait for these things to go away before you know that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's evil, man. Because they root around in the dirt and stuff. So if they get you and bite you or hook you, it's a, it's penetrative, and there's bacteria in there that's like been sitting there waiting to just destroy you. It's, and I've heard that like when people finally do kill them, they'll find like broken off knife blades in their back or like I'm bullets sure they didn't just, penetrate. They're just really tough. But that's why like my, my brother brothers and i we had this favorite movie i think it's a russell mulcahy film from australia called razorback mm-hmm. about a gigantic razorback in australia <laughs> who gets sick of this shit and goes to a slaughterhouse town and just starts wreaking havoc and destroying people <laughs> but he's seriously the size of like this garage like it's a it's a giant race it's an incredible movie you have cool. to see it it's okay. this australian <laughs> australian exploitation film about a <laughs> giant wild boars running around wrecking people and i like it so you like I feel like that's Americana, and then for you to be in LA, living oh. this fast life, 
Is it that No, you know what I mean. Though. Yeah, but like books, oh, this, and poetry, movies, and being aware of the industry and the biz, and then going back not that far to like Razorbacks. And, oh, well, know. that was every summer and Christmas, and every once in a while we just go back, and you know, it's but that's that's my life. That's what I know. Like you're a kid, and in the morning you have to feed slop. You have to go out and feed slop to the hogs, and you mm-hmm. have to uh, deal with the dogs sometimes, and and shuck shuck corn they'd be like in a carport there should be a mountain of corn and before you could do anything you'd have to shuck the corn mm-hmm. so you have like this knife from like a mini machete and you hack the bottom and then or hack the top and peel it back peel it oh, back yeah, peel yeah. back snap the thing up you know oh no yeah um, so my snap peas all that stuff yeah I just hate that stuff like, i was thinking recently about <clears throat> so many of my favorite books have that interaction boy and his grandfather and grandpa taught me all these things that i Never would have seen. And Grandpa yeah. was like this old breed of toughness where he rolled his own cigarettes and he could whittle and he could shoot a gun really accurately. And he taught me how to build a fire and how to feel the air and know what that meant for the weather. It's all yeah, these like, yeah, great yeah. old man things. And then I was thinking, we're such a young country here. How many generations of that really have there been of like maybe, bad Grandpa? Maybe eight? Is it something like that? Yeah, I think <laughs> it's a really limited number. And yet, when we hear those stories, like it's a story as old as time. But then there's some people, like I met when I was hanging out in uh, Channel 101 at the beginning, like one of the first people I met was Don Cody, who is, you know, just a bright light and amazing personality and just, you know, lovely and wonderful in every way. And she... But I was like, ah, Don Cody. And then I met her parents, and I was like, so your family is from where? And she starts talking to me. She goes, yeah, you know, like Cody. It's like Buffalo Bill Cody. That's our family. No And I go, way. like, off an offshoot? She's like, no. Straight line. <laughs> we are the descendants of Buffalo Bill Cody. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> and that can't be that many more generations removed either. It's no. sort of like, boom, boom, yeah. boom. Yeah. It's like the Hearsts, and at least what I know from uh, Deadwood. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> not that long ago. So then you go from you, your family kind of, or your parents, I guess, get to New York. Is that how? Yeah. Well, they, I I forgot how it went. They graduated. I was born in Texas. um, And then we moved to Minnesota and then we moved to New Jersey. Then we moved to New York and we moved upstate. Like it was this back and forth, New York, New Jersey. And a lot of times my dad would go back to college and get another degree or something. So I remember there was a year that I lived in Arkansas while he was getting a, uh, a dental degree of some kind to further his engineering stuff, basically. And um, so we, I just lived in Arkansas, which was crazy because I was six and growing up in the house that I grew in, I already knew how to write and do things. And I'd only written with like pencils that were adult pencils and ballpoint pens. So the first day of school, halfway through school, they put me in this remedial, not even remedial, like it was sort of... Um, yeah, it was like remedial, you know. <laughs> and they and my mom came in. She was like, "What the hell is this shit?" Because they came and talked to her. <laughs> Why and said, is he wearing a helmet? Yeah, they were like, "We're concerned about your son and that kind of stuff." And uh, they were doing things where they were just they were copying the alphabet off <laughs> the chalkboard, and they were doing it with the fat pencils, the big yeah, giant fat yeah. pencils, the giant eraser, which I'd never seen before. I didn't know how to hold those. Things. I thought they were amazing. I didn't know how to I hold them. I didn't, and they had paper with the wide. Yeah. Rules, right yeah, rule yeah. lines on it. I didn't know what the hell that shit was. <laughs> and so I couldn't, and they were like, well, he can't, he can't write letters. So we have to start him at the beginning. And my mom was like, shit. And she <laughs> went back and came back and like put some college rule paper down and gave me a ballpoint pen and goes, dude, just show him what's on the board. I just started writing stuff. And they're like, uh, what? This motherfucker doesn't need these fat pencils. What the fuck is wrong with people? 
<laughs> and she goes, I have a class to teach because she was teaching in the same school and she just went across the hallway. That's a lucky stroke of timing. What if she, like no one had caught it and you were Oh, just... if she didn't teach at that school or something? I would have yeah. been, well, I, that would have lasted as long as the dinner table because she was always like, let me see your homework. Oh, or what did okay, you learn? Yeah. She would have seen it and then she would have been in. They were always in the school as soon as something came nice. up. I used to get beat up a lot and they, because I was always like jumping grades mm-hmm. for certain classes and all the kids, you know, once you, that's fine when you're like seven or eight, but once you hit nine, ten, they just want to beat the shit out of you. Do you enter high school when you're like 11 or 12? No, well, uh, I was, so I think around the time I was seventh or eighth grade, eighth grade, we moved and I was eighth grade. So they had a middle school instead of a junior high school. And so I, w- oh no, they had a junior high school. So I was, they were like seven, eight, nine, but I was in eighth grade. So I would do homeroom with everybody and I would do social studies with everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause they had a great social studies department. And then I would do advanced English, which was ninth grade. So I stayed in the same school, but I had German in the high school. So I was taking like um, 12th grade German or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I would, go to, I would go to the high school for the middle of the day wow. for my classes. And then I would come back at the end of the day <laughs> for a study hall. So I would like take a long time coming back and just meander back to the school. Like, school and then, um, yeah, so I would spend time in like both like crisscrossing from both schools and both schools and um and and hanging out with like really but i was always just reading older shit and then my parents had like three bookshelves full of stuff and they were like the goal is to have read everything on this bookshelf by the time you leave this house and go to college Damn so it, i like that that's but, a cool yeah rule. but here's what ends up happening it's eight o'clock at night everybody's going to bed early it's raining out so you go grab a book really Honestly, Tropic of Cancer. And I just start reading. And I'm like 11 going, wait a minute, there's a carrot in her butt. What the fuck? And I just keep reading these books. And then I go back and I'm like, this guy's got four books up here. And I just read all. And so I realized. Know, like all of Henry Miller? Like I read all of Henry Miller. I started reading. After I finished that, the next was my mom's line. And it was all Sidney Sheldon books. So I read like The Other Side of Midnight, Bloodline, which is about. Uh, uh, snuff films the big muscular guy having sex with women with a, wearing a red ribbon around their neck and then choking them to death <laughs> and then, and the side thing I'm 11 I'm <laughs> like 11 it was like I was in an English class in ninth grade and uh, the guy was like trying to make a point he was like how many of you read on your own just read on your own outside of school and a couple hands went up and he's like name a book that you read and I was like uh, shit what was it <laughs> Naked Lunch no 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 no. it was close though it was a Jacqueline Suzanne book I think it was um, shit what is it it was a totally like just an adult book and I remember I said it and the guy stopped and like his body shuddered <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, well, like once is not enough, something like that. It's a, it's one of those books from the sixties, seminal book about a young girl's coming of age. She dates older guys. She's got a bron- There's a movie about it, and um, Brenda Vaccaro plays her her saucy roommate. She's like, and she's like constantly picking on her, making fun of her, and she's like. She was asking her about blowjobs, <laughs> and Brenda Vaccaro's character in the book is just like, "Oh, I just put it all in a big jar. It's great for hand cream and face cream." And then the girl's like, "What?" She's like, "I'm kidding." <laughs> and I just read this because going like, I think I, I think I stopped reading at that page and didn't get to the punchline until the next day. So like for a whole day, I was going, "What?" Do you do? So wait, but you went back and have since read this again as an adult. 
Yeah. Because if you remember all that and not where the red fern grows, I'm bummed out. Well, where the red fern, it's like asking if I, what I think about Jack Frost and stuff. Like, I read all those things because I had to. These yeah. things I read on my own. These were, so the, so the things that most kids are kind of, almost like a video game, like you're hitting checkpoints right at the right time. Yeah. Hey, well, we had like, hey, we had programs, we had great books and yeah. all these things where it's like, they're telling you what books to read. Yeah. And then I was, my parents signed me up for the Reader's Digest book club. So I was just getting books non-stop I just read 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 yeah. everything I was reading everything and that's how your world comes together because I remember there was this girl when I was in the, the kid who made me want to be an actor like go okay you're gonna have to come up with a plan secretly to become an actor mm-hmm. because my parents didn't want me to become one well I remember I don't know shortly after we first met it seemed like we had a pretty long conversation and I remember you talking about like being in a bar in New York and watching you know bankers people in suits lawyers yeah. and I associated that you for a period were like a trial lawyer and had then I trans- worked I had had these internships in college that were super super high end mm-hmm. um, where you're essentially in a quote-unquote legal assistance thing, but these were firms that did major shit, and you, they didn't want you to do what a legal system. They wanted you to handle their shit. They would give you stuff and go like, look, we don't know how to do this. Figure this out. <laughs> or here's some stuff. Do it, and mm-hmm. don't fuck it up. You know, Meaning like you're getting kind of a legal education. Like reading you're getting, well, the, and things like yeah, that. especially the one in D.C. that I did. The, the one said, so you're going to be doing third-level third trial lawyer work. Your third year trial lawyer work. It's an election year. All of our first and second year attorneys are working on campaigns. So we're handing you a load. If it ever gets to be too much, just let us know. Mm-hmm. But the reason we ran you through the interview process so fucking hard is because we need a special person for this job. And so you got it. And then like the first day they brought in just, I had a giant office and they brought in like stack after stack after stack after stack after stack of boxes. And, mm-hmm. like, and I go, what is all this stuff? And they go, these are all, we represent the Pentagon and these are all the Tower Commission uh, papers. You need to know everything that's in this and wherever it is, like where it is, where, like all that stuff. And so what, I was like- What year are we talking about here? This is like uh, early 90s, like late 80s, oh, early 90s. Okay, okay. So like the Tower Commission had happened, but there's still all this fallout and other stuff. And all the, all the other sort of pieces are now being dealt with that weren't sort of so public. Yeah. And they represent the Pentagon. And then like there's- this I the the first really major thing that was like an ongoing thing. Then there was this other thing where it was like remember when Clinton uh they Clinton was running and he had a major contributor who was this guy um who wasn't really around. He might even have passed away by this point, but he was under investigation by the the federal government and the IRS and stuff for not paying taxes and stuff. And it turned out that he was just this immigrant who'd come to this country and then made himself a fortune and then was like why do I have to pay 50% of my fucking taxes I worked my ass out for this shit and then would live offshore essentially mm-hmm. he created a bunch of tax loops for himself and they represented this guy and so you get these calls being like hey hey I just crossed the international or I've crossed the, uh, the 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 sea line or whatever. I'm in the country right now and he's not allowed to be in the country. And they were like scrambled jets. The US would scramble <laughs> jets to go get him. At one point he landed at the airport and then just waited for the government to try to get him and then he like raced them off the runway and took off. <laughs> and he had a boat that he would he would go into the United States waters and then like when the Coast Guard came after him, he would sail out so they couldn't touch him and he just kept I doing it. I like that. this life. What a scoff. So they were like, Well, we've got to represent this dude, but 
his papers are deliberately a mess and you have to make so i ended up doing this like x this job of like creating this x files map of all of his subsidiaries and where they were sort of organized yeah. sort of in the in the thing and then like folding it into one big thing and then they would publish it and then and uh the Fannie Mae thing like all that whole collapse um I was in one I was involved in one like one of the that was like my first month in that job it's like all <laughs> this shit came down and then there were these amazing cases that were just on the side like uh there was a guy I was working for and he he had a major office across the at the end of the hallway and I had the side office but it was like there was a in Los Angeles a basically a terrorist war between the owners of Guest Jeans and the owners of Jordache Jeans, the brothers, mm-hmm. Marciano brothers and the Jordache brothers, were at each other's throats <laughs> because one of them originated the uh, the name, and then I think Marciano brothers bought it when Jordache was when jeans went out of style, disco jeans went out of style. Marciano brothers came and swept in and like bought the name or something and then built it back up and then the Jordache guys were like wait a minute what the fuck are you doing we created this shit <laughs> and so like there's this battle back and forth for all this stuff and there's threats being made and like I mean <laughs> like at one point one of the secretaries knocked on my door and goes you're gonna want to see this the Marciano brothers are here and then these guys come in these long leather dusters and they're just like walking with reel to reel tapes on their <laughs> like walking down uh, and then I remember like going down the case list and just cracking up at some of the names of the cases like Mario Van Peebles versus NBC and Sonny Spoon. Like, it's like, <laughs> what the fuck was this job? I worked for Nixon's attorney for a while in that place. And so, like, you, these are like super mega, like, but you're just, things. this is just, to and pay I'm the just bills this kid. And wanting to be an actor at this point? No, well, I was in, still in school. And so I was just a kid who was just, you know, uh, this were was, you kind of a savant? Job. They sort of knew that. Like, were you good with numbers or just? Well, you're, they you're, always when they're doing this. Like, I, you know, I studied all this stuff in school, and I was part of the the shield was that I was going to be a, a lawyer or a doctor or a both or something. And yeah. So I took all of these classes, and and I really was, it was interested in stuff and and cared. But at a certain point, you start to see what you can do without in life, and I couldn't do without the arts. I would suffer. Had greatly. you been in like school plays and stuff like that, or I've been in a lot of. Uh, Weird, some weird performance art stuff, a lot of individual art stuff. Um, I sort of stayed out of the school system because it was very hokey, and I just, I just, it just didn't ring. You know, my stuff is very straight to the bone and very truthful, and that stuff was very memorized and and little rascally. You know, yeah, it's yeah. half a league, half a league, <laughs> half a league onward. I couldn't do that shit. I just didn't want to. And also, they had like a hierarchy within the school drama set up which was you know these people were the people and these other people were the the pretenders and and if you walk in there and then it's going to be like this it's just going to be the same thing that goes on with the cool guys and the not cool guys and i just didn't want to get into another sort of battle like that whereas the more exciting shit was just happening you know local plays and stuff were always looking for a kid in a scene you know to so come that's in where you stuff. started so like- i would just go and like yeah i mean i remember I wanted to do it so badly that we took a trip to Stratford, the, the Shakespeare Festival in Toronto, outside of Toronto. And I we were watching Midsummer Night's Dream and I drifted away <laughs> out of the theater and snuck backstage. And I just went department for department. I go, what do you do? How do you do it? And they just no took way. me through everything. Wow. To the extent that we lost track of time. 
and somebody came storming back and they're like, is there a kid back here? And I was like, oh shit, what time is it? And it was like, I had delayed the trip back by like hours because I was just back there. And they were like so glad. They're like, oh yeah, man, you can come here and perform. And I'm like, then you're away from everybody and you just, this is all you do? And like, oh, this is all we do. That's so great. And it just occurred to me that there was a life there. Even Pirates of Penzance. We went to New York City to see Pirates of Penzance with, uh, I think, Linda Ronstadt maybe and Rex Smith, something like that. And I, there was a point where they were hustling people back to get on the bus. And they knew that I was in trouble. <laughs> so they weren't paying attention to me. And there was a moment where all the hangers out backstage who were waiting to get autographs and things um, were between us. And I could have slipped through that door. I mean, I had this thing, like the way you get around, like I was a photographer, and you just kind of act like you have credentials yeah. everywhere you go. Yeah. You look the people right in the eye, the gatekeeper's right in the eye, and you go, cool, are we good here? And then you just walk. And I could get into anything. And I saw the gatekeeper there, and he looked at me, and I was like, they're all right. Like the people around him go, they're all right. And he looked at me and go, I'm serious. And then he goes, okay. And I was like, <laughs> at that minute, I realized I could walk backstage and that door would have shut. They would have, that bus actually would not have waited. That bus would have left. Yeah. And I could have been just there. And I, I remember my heart was pounding and I was this close to like crossing that line and going. And then I just didn't. I just went and got back on the bus. Then I was sitting at McDonald's. We like did a big break to McDonald's. And uh, my friends were just like, isn't this great? fucking didn't go to school were you at McDonald's Jesus and I was just like yeah shit I wish I was backstage <laughs> <laughs> I ain't um, been on this bus I had the exact feeling uh, wanted to start stand up at like 15 went to a comedy club and had a plan figured out we sat in the front row the everything went exactly as I thought the host came over and blah 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 put the mic in my face right and I had a zinger ready to like I'm gonna zing this guy people will laugh and then I'll get on stage and I'll I'll take I'll do I'll figure out something right and exactly as I envisioned it happened Mike in my face and I just froze so oh, that same awesome. feeling of like I can go in that door or but, so you, but that feeling doesn't go away I remember we right, went to yeah. I took all my friends out to the comedy club in in Rochester when we were in high school it was called the barrel of laughs <laughs> and, we were, and, they, and the host was a guy who was modeling himself after Richard Pryor I mean that's that's all he was you know he was a career host at this place and he had really hokey jokes <laughs> he had one where like uh, he you know had like a sort of black suit on and a skinny black tie and at one point halfway through a set he turned and looked at this girl and he and he goes hey mama and then his tie got an erection basically like it just stood straight up <laughs> and then it went and then she was like I'm with him and it went straight down and he goes there's a white one of these it's a bow tie and, he's like, and everybody's like, I'm like oh god so this kid gets on stage and starts telling jokes and I think he looked at the room and just thought Man, it's a white crowd, so I'm just gonna tell some some black jokes, but not bad black. Just, just like referencing, like, and the black guys are like, "Uh, hey man, you can't do that." Like he was doing that kind of shit. Yeah, and he kept doing this black. He was getting laughs. So I go, I got a thing, because we were like four. Bi- we, I mean, the Friday night special on on pitchers, you know, how like local places and pitchers, like dollar pitchers or yeah. something. We were 18, and we we're like four pitchers in at this point. <laughs> and so I was just waiting for the moment, the timing. I could feel it. It was. It was one of the first times it's ever happened. Like, I could feel a comedic moment sitting there, and the guy walked right into it. And he goes, and then the black guy was like, I don't know nothing about it. And I stood up and made sure that my chair scraped on the floor as I stood up. <laughs> and I stared at him, and I went, man. And I walked out the door. <laughs> I went to the bathroom. And then 
because I had to go to the bathroom anyway. And then I went, I went to the bathroom, and I came back, and everybody was watching me come back in, and uh, and the guy's like, "Hey, nice to see you." And then I sat down, and my friend's like, "Why the fuck did you do that?" And I go, "Why?" And he goes, "Man, he went on a whole apologetic rant. He was apologizing to us. They put the spot on us, and then <laughs> and then he, I go, for what?" He goes. Dude, you made him feel bad. <laughs> and I was like, it worked. And then he goes, and then we finally we had to say, you know, he's just joking. It was a joke, and everybody started laughing when we said it was a joke because yeah. they realized you were in on it. And I was like, oh shit, <laughs> okay. That's almost more like performance art. That's very was, you, like to. Kind I, of- I was like seventeen or eighteen, and then I remember the guy was waiting for us when we came out, and mm-hmm. he told me the schedule. He's like, well, you know, the schedule around here is uh, Monday night is this night, Tuesday night is this night. We got open mic on Wednesday, and you can, and I was like, oh, cool, I know the schedule now. I never went back to. Uh, I mean, I went back to Barrel Laughs a couple times, but never like. In but that why context. then? Because you know, how long have you been doing the Arbar show now? The Arbar show is twelve years as of last night. That's nuts. We had our anniversary show last night. The twelve year Arbar comedy show. Twelve years. Last night was crazy. It's always crazy. Yeah, but this was, I remember, so you know Wesley Dolores, right? Mm-mm. He's very tall, very reedy, has long sort of Emo Phillips type hair and stuff. And he does nutty kind of stuff. Sometimes he just wears like under overalls, like a, uh, that are shorts, mm-hmm. like a little boy, like later host, <laughs> but they're red corduroy. And um, his hair is blue now. And he, once he came out and for three minutes he just swept the floor in gold shoes and then he told a one-line zinger and walked off the stage and the crowd was laughing so hard because they were like the fuck just happened and so he called he sent me a message the night before the show middle of the night I don't think I want to do stand-up tomorrow and I thought immediately my first thought was oh this guy's gonna bail because people like get tense or nervous and they and he goes and then I get to the rest of the message. I would like to do horror. And I'm like, I don't know what that is, but the way the show is, yeah. we, ne- we never ask. And then he showed up at the show and asked if when he started, all the lights in the house could be off. So that we had to coordinate that. So now all the lights are off and this song is playing. And he basically walked on stage with a glow-in-the-dark cloak and then his face was painted with glow-in-the-dark paint. And then he had green shit on his teeth and he had a little like, thing that would light his face it was just attached to his chest it would light his face and he sang this and he was brushing his teeth and singing this <laughs> song in a in a witch's voice that had echo on it like green teeth and he, it was the scariest thing it, people were terrified but also laughing because the three acts before that had done just done comedy and then here's this guy doing that nobody knew it was like 1979 all over again. It was just sort of like that kind yeah. of, that alt weird shit. It was one of the best things I've ever seen. I was like, what the hell is that? And that started the show. It was like the fourth comic in. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then Courtney, I don't know if you know Courtney Paroso. She's part of, the, she's coming out of that group with um, Phil Berger's, they're sort of doing advanced clowning. Oh, okay. uh, you know, not makeup, but like just using the entire stage, the, the entire physical plant realizing the audience is planted in their chairs so they can run their characters can run to the back of the wall and yell at the comedy the, the audience from behind and like engage them in 360 degrees that kind of stuff so she she did a character that was a like a i guess it was like a sex robot but she walked out of the out of the wings onto the stage like a robot with a uh, like a power cord attached to the back of her head that went the length of the room um, 
and she had a microphone of her own that lit up and sparkled that had a weird voice effect on it and she just started addressing the audience and then saying she was ready for sex and she would fell down on the floor and was like rolling up and rolling down and the guy wouldn't come get her you know he's like I am ready for you and then she would fall down and put her legs <laughs> in the air and like she kept doing this bit and the crowd was crying because the bit in itself is funny the guy on the chair doesn't know what to do so that's hysterical and she would and when he wouldn't she would roll up and go I am ready for you and then she would roll back and then the robot experiences disappointment and then failure and then just starts crack, having an existential crisis and saying, get me, someone get me out of here. Get me out of here. <laughs> then pours water on her head so that she can physically short herself out and like do and this physical short out. And then there was a woman who had been, who, if Yodoya Travis, the comedian before her, um, or two before her, had not been as expert as, as he was at handling talkative people. This woman, Rachel, uh, would have ruined the set and possibly that end of the show. But he masterfully handled it and she not so gracefully sort of like absorbed it and figured out that there's a rhythm. But she was on one and she was just talking to everybody, every comic, and to the point of interrupting and and people were just skillfully side jumping and making that part of the act every time. And halfway through, as his robot is breaking down, Rachel said something like, get it, girl. And then the robot snaps out of it and goes, shut up, Rachel. <laughs> and then she jumped up on the thing and just started like lap dancing Rachel sort of like in space, but also breaking down at the same time and then collapse. And it was just, I mean, we did, normally you try to space them out so the bits and the vertical stand-ups who are doing traditional stand-up are spread out. And somebody, Paul, who hosts the show, came to me and he goes, so we got four bits in a row. Because Davy Johnson went first and did this NPR guy uh, and then and, and on and on and on. And I was like, you know what? The way this show goes, fuck it. Let's just do it. We did four bits in a row. Yeah, we, I feel like that's very, I, I don't think of it as like, ooh, we better, you know. There is yeah. a, a bit of a science to it, but it's it's so, I like it when it's loose and crazy. and This was off the hook. And then there was just, great stand-ups to close it out like traditional stand-ups but why don't you you never do anything at it really I used to I, th I just feel like I like it's a different side of your brain to run and manage that show mm -hmm. and, and I think you've seen like I stand up in the back there yeah and it's not, a, it's not I'm not aggrandizing myself or anything like you really have to be there to see you know there's a million different things there's people who Want to get wanted to go first, and now they don't want to go first. They want to go. I'm not really like a big name. I won't say who it was, but she she was like, I'm going to do an impression of her. She was like, Demorge, um, can I go first a second at the beginning of the show? And I go, sure. And then it, here comes her slot second. I go, hey, you ready? And she had her arms crossed and she was relaxed. She was like, I'm having a good time. Can I go sixth or eighth? <laughs> and I'm like, well, that now there's somebody else who's going to have to yeah. do that. Luckily, there was somebody who was desperate to get out of there. So I go, okay, yeah, you can do that. And then that sort of like, that absorbed it. But that kind of decision happens. Um, sometimes people in the crowd are not the kind of people you want to keep around. And so you've got to stay on that. Sometimes the mic gets screwed up or the mic cable gets screwed up. And you can't hear it. The person who handles it is in the front. They can't hear it from the front. But what's the joy? At, I mean, I think it's the same like for me doing the junk show. I like seeing people enjoy what they're doing and i, but I take part so. in it but I, I do like that but if it were that much of a headache with like you know essentially hecklers and then yeah i don't really let people change their slot well you know i don't know why that show ultimately i know that i work i really do work my ass off on that show and i like to have that show 
at the end of the show, if it's a good show, it's a good show. That's that's all I care about. And I like that thing of like, man, all these things are going wrong, but <laughs> maybe we can steer them this way. I'm, I'm fairly confident that there's a way to handle it and just yeah. hack all that stuff. But I, I really don't know why that show is that good. A lot of it has to do with that space and the way it's set up and what it allows people to do. And, and you know, and it's gotten a heck of a lot easier now that people know about the show and actually like it at the beginning it was hard i remember like the third year of the show this happened three times where comics came up to me in each case drunk and there were and these people we know (laughs) who are like um hey man how come you never i mean you never asked me to go up on blam all my friends go up on blam and they've been going up for years how come you never ask me and i'm like what the first time i asked you one of them said, the first time I asked you, you said, uh, I try not to do small shows. That's what you told me. I'm a touring comic and I try not to do small shows. And he goes, what? He's like, that's the first thing you said to me. You said it to me at Dave Lyons' house during a party. And he's like, I'm an idiot. I should not have said that. <laughs> like, yeah, no, please put me on the show. And he's, he's, we're still friends. So. And then another one, I said, uh, I asked you if you would do the show. And you said, well, I just got into town. I'm just I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just checking the lay of the landscape. You know, I'm, I'm sort of shooting higher. You know, I'm trying. I mean, I moved from Chicago to to shoot higher. Yeah. So, I, you know, maybe, buddy, but I don't know. And I, <laughs> my thing is like, I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not, this guy started crying. <laughs> he was like, I did what? I go, that's what you said to me. He goes, when? And I told him it's the first time we met. And he goes, I remember you told me a story how you lost your virginity. I go, yeah. And he goes. Oh fuck! Yeah, I was so drunk that day. I would never have said that to you. I didn't know. I didn't know. I'm like, you could do the show. I didn't. I didn't know you wanted to do the show. But now people kind of know it's a it's a hangout. It's like a it's a nutty yeah. and it's a nutty place. And and I'm not saying anything goes, but the rule is like you know, you know. I used to tell people like you can do whatever you want. I don't necessarily want to know what you're going to do unless you need something like two mics or something. But also, you know, the rule is. Don't take a shit on the stage and, and, and put it in an audience member's hand or something like that. You know, just don't. <laughs> and that's that was about as far as the rules extend. Well, like. it, but it, say, it says like the onus is on you to know what's there was yeah. a guy who's a comes from a family of performance artists. Uh, Jesus Christ. What was that kid's name? He doesn't come around anymore, but he used to and he was notorious for really screwing over the audience and the show that he was in when he was doing his stuff. Like he tried to push, there was a show where he was on, he was a guest on and the bit was as he wrote it on paper, but this is not the bit. That's the thing. He wrote it that he was going to bring a Shetland pony out on the UCB Franklin stage and ride it around. And that was a bit, that was not the bit. The bit was that they had to bring the horse through that ramp on the side and the horse wasn't going to do it. So the bit was actually that the audience is hearing this horse <laughs> in the ramp going, no, I don't want to fucking do this. And other people are going, come on, come on, get on the stage. <laughs> and then the horse is like, they can smell the horse and the horse is taking shits on the thing. Like, you know, that's the bit. I kept trying to explain to people, like, that's what the bit is. And more generally, most of what that guy does is not for the audience that's seeing it. It's for the audience that hears it when the people who are there or other people who heard about it turn to somebody else who's not there and says, yeah, and this motherfucker tried to put a horse on stage and they start laughing. Right. That's who the bit's yeah. for. That's the whole Andy Kaufman thing of like, in the moment, not great, but yeah. then to talk about it afterward, hilarious. And he tried to, he wanted to do my show and I was like, that's the rule. That's, as I quoted, it's the first time I did it to him and he was like, oh, got it. And he never did anything crazy on our show like that. Yeah. All he, he did, the most brilliant thing he ever did on stage, because everybody, I don't want to say hated him, but people were like, 
you're not doing my show. He just was banned all over the place and <laughs> maligned ever. So he came out in a like a like a members only jacket and a suitcase, like a Samsonite, old Samsonite suitcase. And my friend was was ripping off uh, just tasty licks on an electric guitar the whole show. It was just like whenever anybody comes up, just start shredding. And so he was shredding the whole show, just like a, a one off. And he turned to him and he goes, "Can you play for me the saddest music you know?" And then a the guy played some horribly sad music. And he goes, "No, sadder." And he did four levels of this until it was like. What is this guy going to do? I thought he was going to shoot himself on stage or something. It was like sad. And then he opens up the suitcase and the audience is like, what is about to happen? And he pulled out a scroll and he goes, this is every rejection notice that I've gotten this year. (laughs) And then he grabbed the first page and the thing rolled off the R-bar stage all the way to the bathroom. That's how long it was. (laughs) And he just started reading his rejections <laughs> from people who were in the room, some of them. Oh, really? One of them was like the South by Southwest Film Festival. He has the same name as a director. The South by Southwest Film Festival accepted him to the festival and then sent him an email rejecting him because they Ooh, said, we thought you guy. were the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the best, closest thing I ever got. But the thing was, for whatever reason, he was never as good as the rest of his family. And his family, including his father and his mother, are all expert performance artist and his sister is a regular on the show period she'll look once or twice a year that seems like it should be a show brilliant like being a struggling performance artist where because it's so subjective how do you know like they are phenomenally good and this person is eh, just missing an ingredient well, his ingredient is like having a purpose. Everything he did was an imitation. It's it seemed like an imitation, really, yeah. like at that point. But the stuff he did at our show was was like was legit. I mean, it was. I mean, I don't say what is and what isn't legit, but it had a thing and it happened and it was over and people had thoughts about it and that kind of stuff. And none of the thoughts were, "Oh, I'm going to kill that guy." You know. I mean, he did a in garage comedy. He did a thing where he and his guys uh, told the entire audience that they had raised, um, I think it was like $1,000, something like that. And they had a box, and they said, everybody put your right shoe in this box. We're gonna, at the end of the show, we're gonna draw somebody, the winner that will win this amount of money, this mm-hmm. $1,000, whatever. And um, people did it. Wyatt Senek was sitting next to me, and he looked at me, and I go, don't, don't, don't do it, man. <laughs> I didn't do it. Wyatt <laughs> looked me in the eye and put his right shoe in the box. <laughs> and then they said they would come back at the end of the show. They didn't. The show was over. And then Val, I think Myers ran up on stage and said, "Oh my God, guys! Um, I just got the call. They're out. They're coming outside. So the answer and everything is coming up. The resolution is coming up outside. So the last act of the show will be the end of the show. Everybody go outside and wait, and we'll find out who the winner is." And a white man comes careening down Sunset, both sides of the yellow line, mm-hmm. swoops up. The door flies open. These guys in clown masks throw a cardboard box out, the same one that had all the shoes in it, and it had balloons in it, inside of it, and then the band takes off. <laughs> so now people are like, what the fuck? Fucking, you know, and they're like, well, at least we got our shoes back. And they open the thing, and these balloons come out, and then doves <laughs> just come out. They had managed to put doves under balloons? Yeah, and, and no shoes. <laughs> so now these people are standing around at like midnight, with one shoe, <laughs> I had to go to my car, get one of my soccer shoes, and give it to Wyatt so he had two <laughs> shoes. <laughs> and I think eventually, like a week later or something, the shoes came back and everybody could get their shoes. But 
nobody got any money out of it. There was no draw. That's like, really funny. And that's the kind of stuff that's like, yeah, it's funny now. Why does that? But imagine being that guy. Like Mike Hollingsworth, I think, gave his shoe up and like lost his yeah. shoe. Like everybody was pissed, dude. My, like, see, I don't think of pranks very often. And even if it's like a brilliant prank and I get pranked, I can appreciate it. But I'm also like, why is your brain working like that? Yeah, see, that's the thing. It's like, I don't know. I used to think about that kind of stuff but I would write about it. I would write it into stories. Yeah. You know, I wrote a story about like a, a girl who's out of source, but her roommate's a, 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 you know, a fancy person. And her, that roommate's boyfriend was a young up and coming director and his second film was getting a lot of attention. So this girl gets invited to the premiere and it was like a, the second installment of an action. Uh, this was a story I wrote in college. It's second installment of like an action franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody's there and this young girl who's sort of out of, out of sorts with everybody is seeing this red carpet and she's like, what? You know, it's all about her brain and then everybody settles in to watch the movie and it's a typical lead-in, kind of like Cobra, like I modeled after the movie Cobra where they're like the bad guy's in a shopping mall and then the good guy's coming to get him and when he finally kicks the door in and gets this guy, the guy shoots him straight in the chest, boom, 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 boom and the hero hits the ground and then the credits start to roll and then the lights come up and the movie's over mm-hmm. and everybody's gathered It's like, what the fuck is going on? And the guy's like, that's it. <laughs> you guys were expecting a guy to be alive and come back to life no sometimes a hero gets killed and that was my contribution to the franchise and to the history of action films and that, I mean I, that's how I could exercise that I could do that in a story and and get away with it but I like to do that in real life there was always something in my head that was like you can't do that to people <laughs> they'll kill you <laughs> the, uh, the, there's something about like what's expected so going to the comedy club, being a fan of comedy, sure. but even when you're there and they're telling you like, here are the nights you can come back. You can, the linear nature, no matter how much you're outside of the boundaries of normal, hey, women are different than men. You're like, well, I'm, I'm at least two steps beyond that. But right. maybe you're still holding a microphone. That seems hacky. Right. Maybe you're facing the crowd on stage. That's a little, that's been done. So you see it, but then the whole building itself is something where you're like, I want to be a part of that, but I have to do it in this other way where... You know, you do a lot, of, you do character things, you do right, films right. and writing and yeah. these things where like, you're in that world, but it's- That's why my dream was to be in the Groundlings, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I used to stay up late. I remember I read a Parade magazine, like an interview with Lorraine Newman or something, one Sunday morning. And when I was young, and she mentioned the Groundlings Theater. And so I, I guess I got it in my head at some point that I was, I'm gonna go there, I'm gonna do that. Mm-hmm. And so I got here on a Sunday afternoon Monday morning and the best part was like after I sort of started hanging out there more at the Christmas party one time they were like oh you're famous we remember you from the day you came in apparently the story had been floating around forever like I I guess I walked (laughs) (laughs) I guess I walked right in like I'm fresh off the fucking train hey everybody because I did walk into the Groundlings Theater back then and I was like could I take a tour of the theater and apparently they were like Yes, you can take a tour. And I guess as soon as I left, we don't have tours, but you can walk around and look at the theater. And as soon as I left, they just started cracking up. Like, can I take a tour? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they were like, there was something earnest about what you were doing. And at that time, uh, uh, What's Her Face from Friends was like really huge. So you were getting all these like people who wanted, again, wanted to be famous now were just going, oh, if I just go to the Groundlings and I can fly through that program and I'll be famous or I can say I'm a Groundling and I'll be famous. And so they were getting people coming in thinking, oh, this takes, what, six months and then you're a groundling? Or um, 
agents sending their clients saying, I have a highly qualified agent here, a client here who should, and like they would show me the letters and stuff. And like, yeah, you know, and I was, uh, so at this point they were like, yeah, but it was clear that you weren't that, that you really wanted to be here and there was something really nice about it. And everybody was, you know, was like, <laughs> come back on Saturday, audition, see what happens. I had a great time in my audition and I got to improvise my audition, which was awesome. And, uh, and then I remember like I did a monologue and then, uh, as a farmer who they were like, it was the same shit though. Like out of the box shit. Like he goes, so you're a far, I think Patrick Bristow ran it and he was like, you're a farmer and, um, you're an ant, you're, 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 you're an ant farmer go. And then I did this whole thing about like, I can't even remember what I was talking about. Like that I was I, I I have ant farms and different ants do different things and I started naming the ants and what they do and then I was like this one likes to paint in colored sands what is and I sometimes I go what is that a, a Monet or a Monet and he goes it's water lilies god damn it or some <laughs> shit like that but it just flying off the top of my head just like letting stuff come out and when it was over I was like can I go to the bathroom and the guy goes yeah sure you're done and I walked and I hit the door and I smacked I think Karen Moriyama in the face because she, she had been listening through the door and she goes, she's just laughing. Goes, I'm so sorry. She's just laughing. She goes, you're very funny. Oh, nice. You're very funny. And I felt like relief. Yeah. I was like, I don't know who that is, but that's awesome. And then I went to the bathroom and I came back and I just started classes there. Um, and that was it. Like suddenly I found like a room. Yeah. And then I had to figure out how to work the way they work because that took a while to like get my brain wrapped around that because I was yeah. How much can you just be like, listen, I'm I'll be over here dancing to my own beat, but at some point you got to like just you know jump in a little. Well, bit. my thing wasn't working. That was the thing. It was I was so regimented in like because you know, there's that thing, but then it's also like this regimented do the hard work, be studious. Mm-hmm. And I remember like Mindy Sterling at one point was like, I don't even know if you have fun here. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, you show up with your multicolored folders. You <laughs> sit upright in your seat, slouch for <laughs> God damn it. And then I started going, oh, they're going to kick me the fuck out of here if I don't act the way they act. And then I realized, oh, that's how you act. Jesus Christ. I gotta, I've been uptight. And that, so I just well, started like- such a weird dichotomy with- so like your pre-show email will be like the end of it, you know, like da 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 da, and then at the end is let's work. <laughs> Which I uh, well, I'm basically gone crazy like since I've been here. So now, but it's great. It's just so interesting. Like, oh, I thought we're kids just having fun. Like that's the whole appeal of this whole idea. But then when you really think about like, especially the performance arts piece you met pieces that you mentioned right there's a work aspect you know that you yeah. develop that and then to so get free you're right. in this comedy world where everyone's like we're kids and we're just gonna goof around and you're like i'm taking notes i'm <laughs> very like, serious about this. i have to i just realized okay that's who i am so i have to hide that shit from people basically and that's and w- doing, which means what pretending to be more carefree and like yeah, well cares. i just don't i don't show people how much i work people start to figure like if you go to ucb sunset the cafe that's there uh, in between work, work, I'm there a bunch because I can just, it's an almost like an academic space and I can sit down and I can just grind on something and mm-hmm. just work it out over and out. And they have a stage there, like a black box stage there and you can walk, walk it through and see yeah. things more than you see them in your so head. So Ephraim. Yeah. Yes. Ephraim, Ephraim, Elizabeth, Ephraim Elizabeth King. <clears throat> it's an 18 minute piece on youtube <laughs> which is I'll, if i link it's to it daunting. i'll be on it yeah it's gonna make no matter who you are even if you're intrigued by this you're gonna see that one eight and go ooh. but it flies by because it feels like every moment has been 
it seems like you're riffing the whole thing and then it also seems like but that body language or that specific so the body change. language in that thing is when i was building the character i i i was watching a lot of videos of james baldwin like i was trying to think of like there's a time when um writers were on prime time everybody knew who they were yeah you know, people they were just celebrities like everybody else you right. know and now they just aren't i mean if they are then it's because oprah said something and, and usually those books are kind of you know yeah. they're not deep academic uh, which is crushes. crazy to think with james baldwin too not yeah. just because like an iconoclastic black guy also gay right like and publicly like, like publicly gay publicly right. gay and unapologetic right. and would go on these programs and openly say like here's the problem here's why things suck oh, there's in this was it that special it's like a primetime television special chris uh uh william f buckley versus uh james baldwin in a debate in a debate I don't know if and the place is packed. Oh, it's on YouTube. You can watch. Oh, wait, wait. I do know this. Yeah, 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 but I'm just watching his 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 physicality because a lot of what I wanted to do was he Baldwin has this cadence for his speech. He he speaks very quickly, and then when the thought is done, he stops, gets the next thought, and then thinks and speaks very quickly yeah. until the next one's done. And he's like, I like, and his words just kind of roll together and uh, like that. His eyes get big and they yeah. move differently, and then they kind and he of looks settle up, back. And yeah. his mouth stays open. He's like. <gasps> <laughs> like that and so I was trying to copy that knowing that it would never if I didn't try to do an impression of him I just sort of tried to mimic the cadence and everything it so would be then you're in the cafe and you go into the black box space yep and you okay here's where I'm gonna leave the, the podium or the lectern and I'm gonna yep well I put a chair in the middle and saying this is the mic stand mm-hmm. and then I just started doing it. and the funny thing is like the door guy one of the one of the security guys there is a uh, it's this Nigerian guy uh, Jonathan and he's just watching me He's mm-hmm. like, what the fuck is this guy doing? <laughs> but I was up there and I would just do it. And because once you physically do it, you realize I've walked a weird way, three steps. Now my body wants to rest. Mm-hmm. So you throw a hip out like this and you go, oh, maybe that's a move. And that's and it just starts to accumulate <laughs> the stuff. So I got what I wanted to do was see like once I was like sublimely good. I did that character three days in a row at three different spaces. Mm-hmm. And the one that's taped is the last one. And I was like if by the run of this thing I'm so sublimely off character that I'm not even not even I'm, I'm nervous but I'm not like you know usually when you're nervous you're like okay just keep running it yeah. but there's a point where it's like there's no point in running it it's in me like that and that happened on Friday so I was staring in the mirror at myself making sure I still had it I was like just keep the ball up because I was about to go out and I'd done all the Baldwin stuff so there wasn't really anything else there and then just to make myself laugh because like, you gotta lighten up dude and I just started doing Jagger in the in the mirror yeah you can see that and then when I went out there the audience was so on it from the beginning that I just started doing like incorporating these sort of Jagger maneuvers in where it felt appropriate like every time you make a a, what he he felt was like a dynamic moment well he he genuinely does the hands on hips palms forward (laughs) chicken wing like touching elbows behind you (laughs) and then like I started doing this at one point yeah yeah and then like uh, there's a couple things in there that like because of the camera angle you don't see it but I was doing this stuff from like when I was a kid I used to imitate him uh, doing under my thumb and when he, every time he'd say the way she looks he would go <laughs> he would <laughs> put that finger up and he would jump into it yeah, somehow jump. Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute <laughs> and I started doing that <laughs> but the, and the audience just loved it and then and uh, one of the performers had done two of the shows with me before she didn't do this one and she was like have you always had that movement as part of it and you were just limited the other the other nights? And I was like, no. I mean, the physicality was, but I was sort of rooted to the spot. 
But this one, I you know, you're in that space. So Lyric Hyperion, which is a great experimental theater that's going on right now. So this is where yeah. Phil Burgess is. And it just, the audience sort of encouraged me to own that whole space. Because I'm also berating them the whole time for yeah. not knowing poets and not knowing why I'm famous or why I should be famous and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. And uh, so I just like hit the whole, the whole audience is there. They're planted. They can't go anywhere. <laughs> just yelling, no! It's a, fun, it's a weirdly familiar thing too because the world of poetry as it's been characterized correctly and maybe stereotypically there's a feeling of like, I think this might have been like a Bay Area guy that everyone knew. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah, yeah. Very like, you should know me in my time, and if you don't know me, you don't know the arts. Well, and- they use it all the time to like even to sell like Levi's jeans had an ad once where it was like some Bay Area poet reading. You know, they bought the rights to his poem and a, and, a, and a, his reading of a poem, and then it's just hipster kids, you know riding on the hood of a car while their friend drives them around the grocery store parking lot after midnight and all this, mm-hmm. all this dumb shit. And it's like, uh, it just, people don't realize that this stuff was a major part of, when arts were a major part of people's lives, that it's like it's gone and people don't miss it. And I don't know how or why that is but you know there's the, like i had a, i was in the writing program in college and then there's like a separate level it's like the honors writing program and then there's a separate level beyond that which is like honors honors which i was and when you're there you essentially become a faculty member and so you your professors become your friends essentially mm-hmm. and you eat at the at the faculty hall with them because they want to take you there because they they're under attack from the rest of the english department who were like creative writing is a major fuck that shit and so like they're under in their own department they're under fire um and they make it harder for the students because it's like you have to get the english major in order to get the creative writing so you essentially become a double major Mm -hmm. and then you have these professors who um i i mean i I could feel it then i feel it now more who were just kind of like man this world you know and they get a they get a they get a house they get a decent salary they have these families are taken care of healthcare and all that kind of stuff but at the same time they've got to stay creative in this environment where they're teaching kids and yeah. they're you know that kind of stuff whereas yeah. like my main um uh in the fiction i was in fiction and uh i think my main uh uh mentor was a uh, advisor was an award-winning author I think almost all his books had the film rights had been sold when no movie had been made. And I don't think he ever went to college. The guy had just had a series of amazing jobs. He was in the army at one point. He was a meat packer at one point. He worked in a, uh, in an asylum and the night shift at one point, you know, he worked in a post office at one point and was writing these books about communities of people and terrible things that happen in these communities and how they get hidden and, and, and then revealed and all the concussions that happen of all that. And he's like, famous well-known author but he was like look at these erudite dickheads rocking walking around this thing like they own everything and he's like it's just it's a mess man and they so they confide to you you confide to them you see this frustration Mm -hmm. constantly this battle they're constantly under and they're competing with each other and other people for tenure and and for notoriety and but those are their friends and then there's you know i used to win a lot of writing awards and you have to go to these dinners and you sit at these tables with these people and it's just like very stuffy and and 
inner it's like a eugene o'neill play where it's just like there's all this stuff bubbling beneath the surface that's just evil like not evil but like just just contained inner jabs going Human. on i mean i mean we're yeah, not that far away from primitive desires of you have that i want that which you'd think humans would be elevated above but we're clearly not and yeah, we're yeah, everyone yeah. pretending to be when you get into those worlds where your limo's a little longer than mine yeah <laughs> just it's, it's all it's all that kind of it's like so ridiculous but once again i have further questions and thoughts but i okay. don't want to keep you here all day but if you want to do some bonus content yeah yeah let's could, do some bonus content. okay let's do and i have I'm more good. beer to offer as well are you enjoying the steagle uh i love the steagle it's great i think it's really good it's a nice beer it's yeah. like and it's definitely a step I don't, oh geez, I don't want to be on a regular saying a step up above Budweiser because <laughs> I love Budweiser. Um, the other thing that's weird about Budweiser, which I learned um, as a, a younger player at a soccer tournament, so you hang around with, like these older guys. And so we'd won like our bracket, so we didn't have to play for two days. And uh, we had traveled, so we were like in New York. And uh, this, this, this older guy was, was like a Puerto Rican guy, a Brazilian guy, and a Cuban guy. We were like all hanging out. And they I, were friends, and they were, they ran this this team this youth team that we were competing against and uh they would have budweiser's on ice lemons mm-hmm. fresh lemons never heard that before and That's weird. salt and then a vinegar based hot sauce they all had their own hot sauces that they liked but like cholula doesn't work because it's too sweet the mm-hmm. tapatio doesn't work because it's pasty but like you want that that hot really hot vinegary yeah. stuff and you slice a lemon squeeze it into the can or the bottle the yeah. juice like not a baby slice like a big slice squeeze some juice in there then you run the salt in all around it and then you throw that hot sauce in there and you drink that like just guzzle it uh i mean whatever you're Casually, thinking yeah you whatever you're feeling whatever you're feeling at the time it? no it was just a thing that they <laughs> that's how they drank it and like this is what we do but in the summer it was great i'll, I'll try that it sounds okay i still do it every once in a while all right we'll take a quick pause and refill okay. fascinating character i mentioned it before and if you didn't make sure you do it this time uh search out some of his work look for demorge online you can follow him on twitter at it's a ridiculous name lette preto which i'm sure is some cultural thing that i'm unaware of l-e-i-t-e-p-r-e-t-o i i I always forget to ask him what the i think it's maybe a soccer player or something I, i forget but anyway demorge is just like I mentioned several times, just culturally so immersed in poets and writers and just artists in general. And he himself is just a fascinating one. So take a look at his work. I think you'll really dig it. And there's more of that chat. There's like a full hour more. So those of you who, who uh, help out with the Patreon get access to things like that. Once a month, there's usually um maybe not always a full episode but pretty close to it or at least some behind the scenes stuff for as little as like 50 cents a week you can help the show the show never has any ads it is made possible by contributions from listeners just like you so if you like that concept uh get in the mix and help out thanks again to those of you who do it really does make a big difference thanks to dan for putting this show together and okay let's get out of here this is a song by hand habits it's called can't calm down See you next time. Thanks for stopping by the space cave. So take me back outside.